four days after the KKK came, I first broached the idea with the city manager of relocating it. There was a lot of resistance to this. Long story short, we ended up hiring an outside law firm and overruling the staff, got sued by the ACLU, had an outside law firm, lost that lawsuit. The rally is forced to happen in downtown Charlottesville. And then my worst fears that I had played out. Welcome to Founders First, a show about mental health and entrepreneurship and how to build resilience to stay stronger, happier, and be more successful. You can engage more in the conversation by going to the App Store on your phone and searching Founders First Community. Today, we have the rare opportunity to experience what it's like to be resilient amid truly historic turmoil. Our guest today is a three-time author, lawyer, speaks regularly about extremism in society and was in the eye of the storm serving as the mayor of Charlottesville, Virginia, as Americans and the world watched as the chaos of the Unite the Right rally unfolded in August of 2017. In the darkest moments, he called not just on his internal strengths, but a close circle of supporters around him. Just to jump right into it, Mike, if we turn back the clock a bit and think through the events that really thrust you into the national spotlight. In the past, you've run for office, you worked for presidential campaigns, you held appointed positions under three different Virginia governors. Now you're the mayor of an amazing city. You're in your most high profile role to date as mayor of Charlottesville, navigating the frustrations of local politics, but in a small progressive college town. Then some discussions begin about moving a statue and everything starts to change. Can you tell us about that time? What was it? like at the center of those discussions? And when did the volume start to go up? Uh, Well, it's a great question to begin with. um, And I appreciate the chance to be with you uh, and what what Founders First is is up to. I think it's really important. Um, So Charlottesville is really unusual because of all, you know, towns of about 50,000 people, which it is, it has a outsized reputation and it gets way more media attention than a lot of other towns of its size and this goes back it's either a problem or a or a um solution depending on how you approach it that goes back decades monticello is there the university of virginia a lot of people in the media establishment know a lot more about charlottesville than say chapel hill you know or other mm-hmm. athens georgia i don't know there's there just have a connection to it it's a big wedding center in the country. So a lot more people have been through Charlottesville. I do talks, you know, all around the country. And a lot of time I'll begin by saying how many people have been here to to Charlottesville and people almost, you know, frequently a majority of the room will raise their hands because just a lot of people know about it, which meant that as these events started, um, started beginning, they got a lot more attention that you would, than you would have expected if they had happened in some other city. (laughs) That creates an issue because in my position as mayor, and we have a uh, council manager, former government in Charlottesville, with a mayor as the chair of the board, kind of like in a corporation. Mm-hmm. Mayor is the chair of the governing board. The actual operational executive management is provided by a full-time city manager. So the mayor and the city councilors are part-time, ceremonial in part, making policy in part, passing budgets, but the day-to-day decisions are done by the CEO of the government, the city mm-hmm. manager. That's in place in 50% of American cities. So in my job, as kind of the figurehead of the city, one who did have 
policymaking decisions, and that becomes really important as the success of white nationalist events happened. I have to figure out how to talk to a national audience that's following Charlottesville very closely as a lot of these conflicts about race and white nationalism begin, keeping in mind that the year of 2017 saw three white nationalist invasions of the city in relation to this Confederate statue. And in that same year, you had parallel conflicts in Portland and Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So the whole country is watching as these cities are roiled basically by conflict, in a precursor to what's happening this year. We've seen 10 times as many American cities have intense levels of conflict. So I had to figure out how to stand for the city, represent, speak, answer questions, repudiate hatred and extremism as was coming here, be a Jewish public official, which is a whole other piece, ball of wax, but then also do a lot of the internal governance decisions where it came to how were the city councilors relating to the city manager and the police chief and the citizenry and protest groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, And some of that was very, was behind the scenes. And I only really talked about it for the first time in this book because uh, it was almost impossible to talk about some of these details at the time. And so it was a very, it was, you know, there was an inside part of this and there was an outside part of it. And they were both intensified by the spotlight that Charles was on and the successive nature of the challenges that we were faced as wave upon wave of extremism came to the city. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading in your book, as you're preparing, you know, there was advance notice that this rally was coming, right? You have not hours or days, right? There was weeks, was it weeks? Months, yeah. Months, months. even. Months even. Yeah. And I saw there was some coordination discussion about where this would be hosted. And there was, you know, all those layers seem to be involved in that discussion, right? So city manager has an opinion, maybe the governor has an opinion. Everybody seemed to have an opinion on this. Did you feel like you were a, a dissenting voice from the strategy yeah. that was out there? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a background in Homeland Security and preparedness. Mm-hmm. And counterterrorism. I, there was a period of three or four years in my career where I was primarily focused on national security and preparedness work in a number of different capacities in a presidential campaign as an author, as a think tank fellow. And it was just kind of the area of, of policy mm-hmm. that I was interested in. I was the chair of Governor McAuliffe's Homeland Security Transition Council, for instance, when he was becoming, um, becoming governor. Uh, so I took a special interest in this. It ran somewhat counter to the primarily ceremonial and policymaking nature of my job. Mm. But you also had a real, uh, a fluid evolving problem, which was we had failures happening with our operational staff um, Mm. that, that decreased the confidence that the elected officials had in their ability to handle basically these problems with a freight train coming at us. So the, uh, the best example of that was when the Ku Klux Klan came to the city. This was the second of the event. Mm-hmm. There was a standoff that occurred after they left between the police and the and anti-fascist protesters where the police ended up uh, using tear gas against the protesters. And that enraged the protesters. It seemed unjustified. There was a story that they gave about how the protesters had provoked it, which I was told, and I shared that story with the public. Mm-hmm. Months later, it turned out that it wasn't true. We needed the police to provide uh, an accounting to the public about why it was tear gas used. They said that they would, but they didn't. 
And then right after that happened, it was five weeks between then and when the Unite the Right rally was going to happen. All of this increased by mag by 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 tenfold mm-hmm. the attention on both the left and the right that the Unite the Right rally was going to get because of the conflict around this. So you had multiple levels of dysfunction happening and disagreement between inside the government and outside the government. And we ended up basically, I I ended up leading an incredibly risky effort from the elected officials to overrule the triad of the city manager, the police chief, and the city attorney who mm-hmm. were kind of hell-bent on sticking with the city strategy of having of handling the rally in downtown Charlottesville with the Robert E. Lee statuette. Mm-hmm. First Amendment law frowns on moving a free speech event, even with hate speech, which is not illegal at all. And there was a lot of public confusion around these issues. Mm-hmm. They, they want you to have your speech next to the object that the speech is about. And this Confederate statue is in the most dangerous area of Charlottesville to have, a, to have conflicting groups. Mm-hmm. We wanted to get it out of downtown Charlottesville to this area where there are these football fields. Four days after the KKK came, I first broached the idea with the city manager of relocating it. There was a lot of resistance to this. Long story short, we ended up hiring an outside law firm and overruling the staff, the elected mm-hmm. officials did. And intruding in the permitting process, which is not what the elected officials are supposed to be doing, that's a staff function, but we were so alarmed by having this event downtown, so we basically overruled the staff, got sued by the ACLU, had an outside law firm, lost that lawsuit, the rally is forced to happen in downtown Charlottesville, Uh, all kinds of and then the, my worst fears ha- that I had played out, that it was an unsafe event to have happen in downtown Charlottesville. And the way that the First Amendment is set up right now and the kinds of things that they look that they allow you to look for in terms of canceling an event like this, we never had mm-hmm. from intelligence officials and from like the Fusion Center. And so the event happened. It was worse than everybody feared. It was disbanded. And then after it was disbanded was when the, the terrorist attack of a of somebody weaponizing a car and plowing it into a group of, of uh, pro- counter-protesters happened. Mm-hmm. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. And and it was one of those cases where you, we tried really hard to avert disaster. And at, at the very best, I hope that there's a lot of learning. And I know that there is that other cities can harness from what happened in Charlottesville so that it doesn't happen in those other cities and they can learn from us. I still think the mo- one of the most important things we did after all this when I was mayor was we commissioned an independent investigation to find out what had happened and who had made what mistakes where and to generate learning so that other cities mm-hmm. could look at what happened in Charlottesville as you have an increase, you know, increased conflict and construct better security plans and have better communication and better rehearsals, better tabletop exercises and understand how to push the first amendment a little farther to get a better balance between freedom of speech and public safety. Yeah. So I, I think it's a very, worse there's a lot of learning that comes out of charlottesville yeah and i think the parallels as we're thinking about entrepreneurship here i'm like having these like mild panic attack attack flashbacks to in my own company before a you know a huge event that we know has been coming for months it's like time on stage to demo a product or some big announcement that's coming and you know there's policies and procedures in place and as you talked about on in, in your experience here you know i'm thinking back to my company and there's you know the software isn't working. We know it's not going to work before the big demo. We have eight days to fix it, or we have hours to fix it, or teams internally uh, in the hierarchy aren't getting along or are having disagreements with each other. So I'm, I'm brought back to so many of those same sort of 
moments where I realize that I'm going to be in the spotlight or my company or my product are going to be in the spotlight. And I think it's a universal experience among us entrepreneurs to be probably even just understaffed from the beginning, um, let alone have staff that's just, you know, disagreeing with each other or different layers that aren't working well together. So I've, I've been there before. I want to take you back. So, so suddenly there's a lot of really angry people who gather around this issue, right? And it sounds like your town's about to become their rallying point. There's large groups of armed and violent white supremacists that are coming to town to fly their swastikas on American soil and parrot an ideology that we determined was evil 80 years ago. National media starting to show up. You're the mayor, the first Jewish mayor. You're getting ready for the coming storm. And many of these groups are now taking a real interest in, in you, right? So I'm thinking about this leader at the top of a company. You're the leader at the top of the city. You're a public yeah. servant. You've got a wife and kids. There's threats being made against you. The stress yeah. must have just been immeasurable. So how were you processing all this at the time? Like, how were you handling this? Probably not great. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I talk in the book that the book was a way to, to process and try and put together events afterward because, mm -hmm. you know, and I do think, I think there are incredible parallels between the position of any executive in a, especially in a startup with any number of exogenous events that create threat to you. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's a litigation or an HR issue or a competitor or some a client that goes south all of a sudden, then you got a fire drill um, and you have, or, or, or God forbid, you have some you know company risking event that's happening where you really have to. And, uh, and it was compounded in my case by the nature of the job, which is a part-time job with some very limited authorities. I would say that for me, dealing with the iterations of the chaos that unfolded, it required, you know, there, I mean, I talk in the book about how just on the one front of being a Jewish official dealing with insane levels of anti-Semitic attack and trolling that came just as I started wanting to call out the white nationalists and white supremacists and that were being enabled by Trumpism and what that was like coming right to our shores. And then that put me really as a public face of these incredibly blistering attacks. And I drew fortitude from the experience of having been in Israel and seen how even you know, secular Zionist Israelis who had who had created this country or their grandparents mm -hmm. had, and they do have a toughness and and a and a and a resilience that is that that is learned and that has given me an example at least of how to demonstrate some kind of strength and resilience and a model to mm -hmm. to try and take this stuff in stride and really try and be tough and 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 understand that fear was the enemy. For me, and that a lot of a lot of forces in political in public life today, this is what trolling is about. Their victory is when they succeed in intimidating you or getting inside your head or controlling your game. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, whether it was forcefully explaining what the First Amendment is in this country or forcefully standing up against Trumpism and white supremacy and anti-Semitism and open bigotry or forcefully fighting back against extremism however I could, or, you know, but some of the most harrowing part of this was dealing with the far left, which, and anarchism, which is really tough because I'm very progressive. 
-hmm. but I also believe in institutions and I believe in government. And so, and a lot of mayors today are dealing with this in a lot of cities. It's very tough to be very progressive, but also not to want, you know, to believe in government and not to, and to disbelieve in anarchy because, and there's a lot of toolkits out there about how to bully and intimidate and pers you know, persuade public officials to, to bend. Mm -hmm. And so I was really trying to do all this. And there are a lot of learnings from it. And the, I'll, I'll just close with, there was this metaphor that I took, we, we had a meeting with Barack Obama, me and 300 of my closest friends right after I became mayor at the White House, where, I mean, I was like in the 10th row. I didn't, you know, I'm not a personal friend, but it was, it, he did share with us a couple of, um, of anecdotes that were very powerful for me. And one of them was, he said that the media cycle today for public entities is out of sync with the work that you do. And he talked about two examples from when he was president, the Ebola crisis and the Gulf oil spill. Mm -hmm. And he said his administration was successful in implementing plans to deal with both of those crises, but they both took months and years and staff work and science and, and implementing the right bureaucracy and programs that were out of sync with you know, some MSNBC story that wanted to make is, is a bowl, is the Gulf oil spill, you know, we're showing live footage of the, of the plume, you know, is it, is it, has it been solved this minute or the next? And mm -hmm. really that's going to be solved in the right way over a period of time. And he was, he was sort of beckoning us to say, you need to focus on sub substantive victories that have a longer time frame and that require the kind of dedicated, persistent leadership that may, it just may be out of sync with the politics and the media climate, but your, mm -hmm. your, the validation will be in, in the work. And the mm -hmm. metaphor that I kept on coming back to that's in the book a lot is of a intermesh gears where the smallest, least powerful, most quickly spinning gears are the ones that our attention is drawn to, whereas the bigger ones that are more powerful that they're connected to that are moving more slowly, that's what really matters. What really matters is are we dealing with adequately violent white nationalism in this country? Are we learning how small cities can better bolster themselves based on experiences like this? Are we, you know, getting in place better systems for handling public events? Is the court system handling the First Amendment in a way that gives local governments better tools to create public safety? So that's that, you know, and, and did we make the right calls? And there were a lot of mistakes, but there were some things that we did right. And I think we needed to focus on, I still need to focus on the long game. Yeah, so many of us see that as entrepreneurs when we're running a small lean organization, team of five, something like that. You know, it always feels like, things are moving so quickly. And I've experienced that in, in my own journey. My biggest company had 350 full-time employees and you right. know, it felt like we were only in that big slow gear at that point, right? Where you know, my you know, purview from chairman of the board of directors was so different than what it was as literally a software developer building the first version of our product as one of the founders. It felt like nothing was moving. What, are there any tips you have for when you're in those slow periods of time, but you're doing the really big hard work, the foundational work that will build the future? Is it, is it like, are there tips for how to know that we're on the right track with that or to, to be able to focus on those big things? Because to your point, I guess before, it's hard to get the media to focus on the hard work happening in the back room. It's, it's very hard. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I guess I would work 
backward from what's the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is someone who who sees these as infinity problems where the only solution is infinity and you have to be on 20, you know, 20 hours a day at a tempo of 110% mm-hmm. and each each and every problem is a fire drill at an intensity of 10. Mm-hmm. And you utterly lose perspective and you lose effectiveness, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that would be the opposite of of the the gear metaphor. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know my my I, I can talk candidly about some things I think were very successful and that I'm very proud of that happened. Mm-hmm. I in the book am very honest about a whole host of areas where I felt like there were mistakes or I just wasn't able to succeed because of the nature of the, of the problems. And I'm not sure how many other public officials could see it. And you're seeing a lot of cities ablaze right now with tons of conflicts in the streets. The mayors, lots of whom I know are, are having to just wade their way through the gray area. So it's not Mm -hmm. like there is some, you know, a lot of scenarios. And I know this in corporate life too, in, in these valleys you interact, you go through, the the fallacy is that there's going to be a is that there's white coat white hats and black hats and there's going to be a, a hero and a villain at the end of the day and that the, that your victory will be clean and I talk about in the book a lot more of the time your victory is like a slog up the field where you're you're getting one or two yard runs mm-hmm. and you're gonna and you're gonna get a couple points but it's not it's not a it's not cinematic. Or at least that portion of it might not be cinematic. So I ha- I still am living within that reality of what the the havoc of Charlottesville was. I yeah. I'm very proud of fighting hard to sue the militia, the paramilitary groups that invaded the city with this alliance, Georgetown University, using this really novel tactic where we basically forced them to agree not to come back to the city because they were in violation of this 200 year old law. I'm very proud of a lot of the racial equity work that we did that was totally unheralded but required a lot of spade work to kind of and, and behind the scenes sausage making to get affordable housing doubled for instance um don't, you know not even looking for credit for it because credit on any of these fronts is really tough but those are the kinds of things that in 30 years i'll feel good about going to sleep at night about what got done um i yeah. think that that mental health and keeping perspective and a sense of whether it's humor or faith or centeredness is probably the most important thing, which is, I think, why what you're doing with your enterprise here is so important. And that, for me, I mean, I talk a lot about how the search for wisdom and reading Proverbs, I'm not particularly openly religious, but there was, I started really thinking a lot about how wisdom, this was such hell, and so many parts of it felt so unfair. But then it felt so significant. I mean, look, Charlottesville, three years later, you know, has become this cultural touchstone. Mm-hmm. And it's referred to Joe Biden is running his campaign about, you know, in some ways about Charlottesville and the Spike Lee movie and the Discovery Channel just did a documentary about I don't know what it's going to mean in 10 years. But as I, in the little role that I had in it, mm-hmm. thinking about, well, at least wisdom could be a, a, a product of this. And there's a ton of, you know, Book of the Bible is about wisdom, Proverbs, and I and there's lots of literature there, wisdom, and, I, and that's why I wrote this book, and that's why I started this Communities Overcoming Extremism project to share wisdom from this firestorm that we experienced. 
And that really, for me personally, became a touchstone that there was something productive to come out of this, this, this kind of hellscape, you know, of extremism in the country. And I still believe that. I believe, I mean, look, we're having this conversation now. I've had three calls this week and webinars and talked to five or six mayors the last month looking for insight from Charlottesville. And I think that there's, there's tremendous wisdom to be had as our democracy figures out how to get a better footing against mm-hmm. these incredibly dangerous threats. I, I love the, the visual you left me with from, from this section is um, of my seven-year-old in the highest gear on his uh, little mountain bike, biking down the street, going 10 miles an hour, but still pedaling like hell as fast as he can, even though it's doing nothing, right? That, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That concept of like, we've got to shift down to the smaller gears and do the heavier work because, you know, it can it kind of obvious when you think about it, when you look at that moment of just spinning and spinning, and spinning, you know, it's that's not going to give us the mental health that we need to, to be successful. So I want to take us to the to the day of the rally now. Everything's unfolding. All Americans are, are witnessing a pretty terrifying spectacle on television and you fought to make the right decisions in advance, but met some serious resistance, as you mentioned, as you're trying to do it. And of course, as the events of the day take a really horrible turn, it becomes clear that the ideology on display is even more dangerous than many of us watching at home had realized as an extremist intentionally drove his vehicle into a crowd of counter-protesters, fatally injuring a young lady named Heather Heyer. Um, Mike, most of our members are founders, entrepreneurs, and business leaders. We start companies and we try to learn from each other how to navigate the stress so we're strong enough to press on. Um, but this is not like anything that any of us have dealt with before. So in this terrible moment, what do you do? How do you recommit to your mission in this time and place when everything just seems to be falling apart? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I appreciate the question a lot because I, I had... You know, I kept a journal during all this, and a couple of days before the events, I had this one passage where I was just trying to think through the worst case scenarios and and really, you know, reverse engineer from my from scenario from scenarios. And this is like why you do tabletop exercises, for instance, and um, which we did not do, and that was one of the failings I think in the at the operational level that other cities need to learn from. And everything I feared happened. You know, I was worried about riots. I was worried about the about these brush fires opening up around the city after this thing was disbanded because of then you would cross over the First Amendment line if it became what's called an unlawful assembly. That's what happened. I was uh, I, we did not get adequate intelligence from the federal and state government about the level of paramilitary activity that was going to happen because it was hidden. and they mm-hmm. they planned and plotted in behind secret gaming platforms. So that was like a shock seeing that these were paramilitary organizations that were really like militias. Um, so as I digested all this, and this was this, you know, the, the prior night, we had tried so hard to get the rally relocated, like I talked about before, and we got the court decision at about 8.30 at night on Friday night that we had lost in federal court. Mm-hmm. So then this thing was, and then that was right before we got the news that this neo-Nazi rally with tiki torches at the grounds of the University of Virginia happened soon after that. So I was, you know, we're just digesting way. And then you have national media, international media has descended upon the town. So you've got satellite trucks everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you really have the sense that you're in the eye of a, of a firestorm. Mm-hmm. How did I deal with it? Um, I tried to, uh, I mean, I, 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 my hair was on fire about this all the way through. I was 
trying to get into the center of decision making as urgently as I could because it felt so important to me that the entire leadership of the organization be aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, I and that didn't happen. They're, they they wanted elected officials, political officials, not to be near where the operational decision was making because they didn't trust what was happening with the politicians. I write about that a lot in the book because that's something that other entities need to uh, need to learn from. I think um, when when the clear when the full scope of the crisis emerged and we had the terrorist attack happen, then we do a press conference to the world. Me and the governor and a couple other uh, of the leadership. Where I went is still where I am today, which was drawing on my on 20 years of work that I'd done personally about democratic resilience and trying to think about this mm. horrific event that had happened in the context of whether American democracy could succeed in moving on an upward track through these kinds of stress tests. And that was not like by any means a Pollyannish take on it by me. It was for me, the the call that I had as a leader of the city was to say this, what just happened was unspeakable and was the worst kind of intentional malicious mayhem that we could have experienced. The question, if we think about what it was and what we are as a free democracy, A, how do we think about it? B, where do we go next? And I thought that it was my duty to speak very passionately about democracy, democracy's ability to prevail through these kinds of stress tests. And I wrote a piece in the New York Times a week later where that was the argument was we will get through this, but and, and democracy has been through these kinds of stress tests before. Mm-hmm. Jim Crow, McCarthyism, this is a this is a bad one right now. Mm-hmm. This is a really bad one. But for me, the long view and being a committed citizen and being committed to democracy means you take the full measure in a very clear-eyed way of the the worst take and the most abject take on what all this is, and then you resolve to move through it and conquer it based on the founding document, mm-hmm. the, the mission of the organization, I guess, mm-hmm. the democracy, which has been through a lot, a lot, not worse, but has been through a lot so far mm-hmm. and got us this place. That to me is still the message. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I started this anti-extremism coalition. That's what I think a lot of the work ahead is, and it's not giving up. It's 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 persevering based on achieving building democratic resilience and achieving our principles and our ideals over these assaults. Mm-hmm. Because the alternative is is the hell of authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we talk a lot of founders first. I hear a lot of founders and entrepreneurs just talking about this all the time. The visualizing the failure case, right, to try and make it less terrifying. So many of us, it's so easy to internalize what we're working on in executive positions, even though we're we're such a small part of it. And um, well, I guess debatable how big or how small, but I think sometimes at least as an entrepreneur myself, I can assume it's maybe a bigger part than it really is. And so that means that I then take on failure as, you know, death of my ego really, and, and the loss of everything, right. And start to associate those two things in my mind that I might not survive this um, and starting to think about the failure case and how the next steps would actually play out can can create a little more 
you know, I don't know, the positive, maybe a more kind version for ourselves as the leaders so that we can really engage the problems in the moments. Like what, what did well, failure coming into this, what was failure in your mind going to look like? like if well, well, let me, I, I so appreciate how you just framed that. Um, you know, and I, I'm not sure how tight the analogy is between a founder of a company and a public official. Um, I mean, founders of companies certainly are public to an extent, especially depending on what the company is doing. Elected officials really are public. I mean, they derive their power from and, and their legitimacy from being elected and selected. They are that that that's an ongoing basis. Your consumer base, in many ways, are your constituents. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's more public by definition, which I think means that the risks and the rewards. And the failures, you know, when you lose favor, when you're attacked, or when you, you know, are more are more tightly linked to what your role already is, mm-hmm. and that means that it can be, you know, like, and I talk openly in the book. There were there were there was a takeover city council meeting where you had some dozens of people calling for my resignation and plowing through that. I talk many times about wanting to resign, about about struggling through and fighting through. The, the setbacks and the and the fear. I mean, public recrimination is is terrifying, and it's a terrible experience mm-hmm. for anybody. But especially, you know, I bring my own psychological makeup to this. This was not easy for me. Um, I still, you know, bear a lot of, um, you know, I mean, the whole city was under PTSD in a lot of ways because it was so it was so violent, so upsetting. Um, so what I what I would say to your to your question is I still think that uh, it was interesting. I wrote this book about James Madison that, that you referred to at the beginning called Becoming Madison, which was this biography of, of his coming of age. Um, and I, it was in, at the end of it, in the book, I was very interested in the fact that this guy who we think so much about today, he wrote his own autobiography and he had been president of the United States, had been secretary of state, had been rector of the University of Virginia. And the lion's share of his autobiography, which he went through multiple drafts of when he was like in his 70s, was focused on events up until he was 36 and 37. And he basically, when he, when he finished ratifying the U.S. Constitution, and he basically ignored the rest of his life. And he had all kinds of ups and downs. He had kind of a not that successful presidency in a lot of ways, and he had lost for office. And I wrote in the book that public life includes peaks and valleys. and the, and the and the valleys can be very intense. And a lot of the time, the question is, how do you claw through the valley and go through the next, whatever the next peak is, whatever the, whatever the, the, the path is upward. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, there, there's a luck, bad luck, good luck plays a huge role in a lot of this also. And, and I've recently been thinking about the metaphor just of the, of the stock market and the, you know, the, the peaks and the recessions and the depressions that even can happen in the in the stock market and how similar they are to whether you have faith in American democracy's ability to continually move upward. And what, you know, it's been said a lot of the time that if you pull a line through the median point of the stock market, that it will always continue to go up, that you're basically like, you're, you know, just the bogle strategy. You're just casting your you're, you're making a long-term bet on the continued prosperity of this big, large industrial country. Mm-hmm. I would draw a parallel to my idea about democracy that you're, despite the peaks and valleys, that you're making a long-term bet that requires your agency 
Um, and, and I think that any individual leaders track has to have that same philosophy. Mm-hmm. You have to, you just have to do the work to get out of the valleys. Yeah. You have to. And sometimes those valleys are really unfair. They're the result of, of, of dynamics you can't control. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of them you can control, some of them you can't. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm in midstream right now in this myself, you know, as a, as a former public official and somebody who cares a lot about public life and is, you know, has, is, has a lot of irons in the fire. And I just believe that you have to keep on working and, and moving through the, turning the valleys into peaks. I think keeping the arc, keeping the arc moving upward. Yeah, I think it's incredible. The book you've written and most recently, and then the, you know, just these conversations that, that make it okay to be both in the peak moment and in the valley moment and, and really talk about that being is so, so critical to the process of getting there. Um, you know, in, in entrepreneurship, we talk about the selection bias of who gets to talk at entrepreneurship conferences. It's either uh-huh. investors that have their risks spread out so widely that they're in a very different camp than, than us as founders and entrepreneurs, or it's the entrepreneurs that have had big exits and made themselves, but also the investors a lot of money. And so it's easy to look at all those stories and say, you know, man, there's, there's a way to make this work where it's just up, up, up and up and you never have a bad day. Right. And that's the story that can kind of, and I think that's a, I think that's a huge mistake. I think that we are eliding a massive part of experience that if anything, probably has the most, has the most valuable education in it is the, is the, I mean, I say this at the very beginning of the book, I'm like, mo- a lot of these political memoirs or, or accounts are, they're, they're Hollywoodized or they're sanitized. So they're, they're like a hallmark or they're like a, they're a cinematic and cinema has a problem. I mean, when you're, when you're trying to recreate reality so that it fits, you know, as a hero and a villain and three, three acts, that's not what life is. And success happens and real, real battles happen in real life. And the fog of war is real. I mean, gray areas are real. So I, I wanted, I think that I'm, I'm trying to provide some contributions by actually talking candidly about what it is like in a city in havoc and sharing, sharing those lessons. And I, I, I was telling you, I mean, I'm talking to so many other leaders now who, I mean, right now I was on a call last week with 25 other mayors. What's happening right now in a lot of American cities is a level of conflict and chaos that just has no easy answer. Mm -hmm. There there, there are no easy answers. Everybody is going to be slogging through and they're going to slog through with the counsel and insights from others who have slogged through. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I want to read the, a quote that we pulled out that is about this from your from Cry Havoc that I love, and then I want to ask a question around this exact point of of how do we move on and put it back together. So the quote is: We like to think of leadership in Hollywood terms: the successful IPO, springing a touchdown, passing a bill, winning great cheers. But more often than not, it's a gritty slog up the field, battered from all sides with a concussion or two along the way. That's what real leadership is. And we need to understand it better. And, and this just perfectly aligns with the experience, I think, of so many founders in our community. Um, what we focus on at Founders First is those concussions or two along the way, right? How do we make it hurt less? Um, but maybe more importantly, how do we recover more quickly? Let's not be blind to the fact that there are going to be these concussions along the way. So maybe the skill is 
recovering and handling them as opposed to ignoring and hoping that they don't happen. So look, they- look, I, you know, I, there, there's a, I, I so appreciate the whole thesis you're saying there's a, there is a big idea at work in the, in the, in the book. That's a much bigger idea. Like in my, you know, my own life philosophy and a lot of what I've drawn from my, you know, my, a lot of mentors that I've had and family members, which is that agony can be, the engine of progress. And it's an idea mm-hmm. that's in Greek tragedy. The word agon is in Greek tragedy. And they believed mm-hmm. that this kind of agonizing conflict was the necessary means for the energy of the drama to move forward. And there's like tons of academic books about this, but it's a very intuitive idea. And for me, there's a lot of solace in that. It's saying, you know, mm-hmm. look, as, as agonizing or as tough as whatever it is, is there must be some utility and forward movement through it. There, there, there must. Mm-hmm. And you see that absolutely in the founding world. I mean, how many, I was just at a, at a event where he's talked a lot publicly about this, but I used to work for Mark Warner, uh, Senator mm-hmm. from Virginia when he was governor, I was one of his two counsel and he had, he just told the story at an event I was with him a couple of days ago. He had two abject failures when he was just getting started out before he got into the cell phone business and started Nextel with the cell phone mm-hmm. bandwidth giveaway. He had like a real estate business that failed. And then he had another, I forget what the other one was failed. He was kind of like living primarily out of his car, crashing on people's couches. Mm-hmm. But those failures, everything they taught him about himself, about resilience, about, about, about what didn't work and then what must work that was necessary to his third successful venture he couldn't have had the third venture if he didn't have those failures so it's it's necessary the the bad experience the agony is necessary to the progress that's my belief about american democracy we wouldn't have as robust ideas as we do about freedom of of thinking if we didn't go through mccarthyism we wouldn't care nearly as much about racial equity if we hadn't have been through Jim Crow, or right now, I don't think people's eyes would be as awake to police brutality in the urgency they are, but for this horrific tragedy and agony of what, of what happened, what we've seen, that's mm-hmm. not saying by any means that there's anything, there's nothing positive in them. It's just saying they are agonizing, but they can serve as an engine for progress. That is, that's just a fundamental fact. Yeah. I want to tee up to, to folks that are listening. This is the time to drop questions in. So I'll, I want to dig in a little more on, on what we're talking about here, but we're going to come back to the audience. So drop them in a chat, type them in a chat. We'll pick up um, one or two, just depending on time here. So whatever has come up so far along the way, and I, I love this, this concept. So you actually say specifically in the book, progress comes not without agony, but because of it. And I love that. It's not just a, a moment that we're suffering in trying to build our vision that, you know, hopefully we can get through soon and get back to the real work again. But you're actually kind of, I don't know, is glorifying the right word or giving some honor and respect to that moment of agony because that is part of the hard work. Is that fair? I, I wouldn't, I would, glorifying to me wouldn't be the right word. I, I, am, I am encouraging a, uh, no, but no, I, I get where you're going. Uh, I, I'm not even sure if it's appreciation. It's just, it's, it's drawing your line around what can be of value and service. It's like the old thing about eating the whole buffalo mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like all of your human experience, including the most 
agonizing failures are of value mm-hmm. to the next thing that you go through. And it could be that the most agonizing ones, the agon could be the most val the most valuable component mm-hmm. of growing through to the next achievement because you needed to go through that that hell and the system did to understand just what the hell is and then you have a more clear-eyed more informed understanding of what you're aspiring to achieve i mean i i think that one of the to to put a fine point on it when the nation sees just how violent the modern day alt-right is and the fact Mm -hmm. that they do feel confident to set up themselves up as paramilitary groups and brandish weapons and fire weapons and invade a city with swastika flags and chant Jews will not replace us. There is a value to our democracy improving to see that on camera and have that revealed and say, this is what Make America Great meant because there were MAGA caps and this is what uniting the right means. That means the nation gets to wake up, take the measure of this reality of this trauma and do with it what it will. And a lot of change has come out of that reveal. So to me, um, there's, there's value in, mm-hmm. in seeing how violent that was. It was, it was awful. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but there still is some utility to it. And, you, and you'd be doing a disservice if you just closed your eyes to it, ignored it, painted a happy face on it, did something else like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, if I look back on my own entrepreneurial experience building 11 companies over 20 years, having one big exit and a couple of average, you know, maybe got my money back at best, <laughs> didn't get my yeah. time back, and then a bunch of, you know, flaming failures. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's those moments. <laughs> it's both the skill of figuring out how to not fall so far I can't get back up again, right? So some of that's in strategy of designing the risk I'm going to take, and I think the rest of that is in just handling, being able to personally, mentally, psychologically handle the pain of those agonizing yeah. moments as it goes down so that I can then rebuild, put the ship back together and try and go sail on the next adventure. And it's um, you know, certainly in the entrepreneurship world, I think the investors think about it right in terms of building big portfolios of 12 to 20 companies so that we make sure we have yeah. one successful one. And the way that so many entrepreneurs do it wrong is we always assume that the thing we're working on now is going to be the billion dollar company. We kind of have to. Um, but having a little bit of honesty behind that of that, this may be the really tough learning experience company that is the reason why I'll be able to build the next Nextel or the next big company later. Well, and I think even, you know, I, 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 put, I put on my other hat, I'm an executive in the general counsel of a 500 person digital design firm. And that, that's my day job. And it is, and it is today. And the, the way in which we have dealt with COVID and with what it did. We lost 20% of our revenue in the first two weeks after March started happening. It was existential. We're heavily exposed in the retail and hospitality businesses, but the the resilience, the resourcefulness, the creativity of the company just in getting through that short-term crisis caused a lot of reinvention. It, it forced a tremendous amount of, of creativity against these problems, whether it's you new know, biz dev strategies or, or, or expanding a current business or opening up, you know, like we had a, we had a scoreboard of us versus COVID and, <laughs> and the company has, has prevailed. 
and it was frightening as hell. And it was similar in some ways to what I dealt with as the mayor of Charlottesville. It's been similar to some other things that I've, other leadership positions I've been in. But um, I think that, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's not even like trying to, you know, the, the, the fantasy of going public. It's like, it's like on my path through these series of events and these, and these, these alliances that are going to happen as we become the company that's going to go public. Even at those, those ladders, you're going to have setbacks, right? Yeah. And so how do you, how do you plow through? And I, you know, I think that the, I mean, well, anyway, that, that, that's, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, when you get to kind of the business school case studies that dig into entrepreneurial revenue, right? So, you know, you see the conference and you see Salesforce has a bajillion dollars of revenue and they did it in 15 years. And we just assume there's this smooth, like over and huge curve that just climbs up. And then when you start to get the kind of business school case studies that dig into it, at best, it looks a lot more like a step function where they grew quickly yeah. and then they went flat and then they grew quickly and then they went flat. And at the worst, it's more like a wave that just goes up and down and eventually happens to go really, really high. And I mean, look, look, look at Airbnb right now. Airbnb, um, who I, I, I know a lot about them, and we did the second summit of our, of our Overcoming Extremism project at their headquarters to highlight the role that public, the private sector companies, mid-level tech companies can take in dealing with extremism because Airbnb is very foot forward. Their business was flattened by COVID. I mean, flattened. They took on um, an, a $2 billion of debt to get through the valley they had they had layoffs, which they talked about very publicly, and their CEO did an amazing job of talking about those layoffs. But the last quarter, quarter on quarter, has shown them adapting themselves well to now a country that wants to travel in entirely new ways, new safe ways. And they just said that they're going to go public. I mean, yeah. their 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 life the last six months has been agony upon agony upon agony. I mean, you think about a business who's, who that depends on hospitality going home. But I, I'm pretty <laughs> bullish on how, on where they're going to go. But it has been everything that you said. That more that more often than not, I think is the is the rule rather than the exception. Is yeah. is those kinds of setbacks and how you go through them is the secret to your future success. I've got a question from um, Charles Douthit here, and if I'm connecting all the stars and triangulating them correctly, I believe that you and Charles. And Dan yeah. worked on the Edwards campaign together about yeah yeah it's good to, 12, it's good to hear from you yeah twelve years ago yeah all right so yeah. um, so Charles' question was who did you surround yourself with during the most intense forty eight to seventy two hours? Um, there's a I've only ever had a, a very small handful of. Of, men, of of mentors, there is one in particular who is a. Uh, I won't go more into it, but just saying he's a very a former, very senior elected official. I also have a very close, warm relationship with, and a lot of trust. And um, I rely on this on this person, and did then um, for the kind of um, very compressed, very unalarmist, but also very real feedback. Um, my wife was incredibly important to me. She and I have done a lot of, and she's also a media, literally a media expert and a national security expert. And it was a professor at UVA at this time. And so she was handing love with me and it was a very stressful time for both of us and for her, because she's also thinking, her, she's thinking about lots of other things like, you know, our, our kids. I mean, I was thinking about our kids, but she was thinking about them and, and her, yeah. and her mom's way. And, um, 
And there were a handful of other people. I, I actually, you know, I, I thought about making a character in a book, a mentor that I had who had died um, in the spring of 2017. Before, And he was so close to me. And I really missed that I didn't have him because he was he was somebody I'd been close to for 20 years and had done politics and business and and I felt somewhat unmoored because I had lost my mentor about mentors mm-hmm. literally lost him and I and I wanted to write that into the book if the book had taken the turn and become a memoir rather than a first person account we thought it was better as this kind of account and study I would mm. have inc- I actually had a prior version where there was a, a sort of motif of of Paul and he's the book is dedicated to him. And I felt very lost without having the, the, the kind of guidance I would have gotten from him when the fire was most intense. And there's a senior um, business, a, a CEO that I who has, runs a big business who is another mentor of mine who actually did. I talked to pretty frequently for a, a hard take on, on challenges that I have and management decisions. So I would, I had a small circle that I would go to. Yeah, that's incredible. I think it, really underscores this importance of having a team, right? And one one of the three that you called out here, just off the top of your head from this experience was a spouse, you know, family member, essentially someone close personally, but then two people, one in business, one on the politics side that were that served as mentors. And I think that, you know, that's that's incredible. And I think very consistent with my experience crisis the value of somebody who isn't currently in the crisis with me, the value of that outside perspective and counsel. I couldn't agree more. Incredible. I think this is a great way to wrap it up today. So Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for sharing this amazing story. Um, I I recommend everyone check out Cry Havoc and we're so grateful for your time and your openness today. So thank you. You too. And and thanks everybody. Good luck with, with Founders First. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Founders First. This conversation continues in the Founders First community. Search Founders First community in the App Store on your phone to learn how to prioritize your health and wellness to become more successful. Get your questions answered by top entrepreneurs and receive notifications about upcoming shows. Until next time, stay healthy, be at your best, go change the world.